And today we're joined by Dr. Logan Jones, who is a practicing hospitalist and assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Hospital Medicine at OHSU. Dr. Logan uh, Jones earned his uh, medical degree from the University of Nebraska Medical Center before coming to Portland for his residency at OHSU in internal medicine. Uh, he has carried an active interest in advocacy and policy, as well as medical education and regularly attends on the teaching hospital service at OHSU. Uh, within his practice, he is especially interested in how doctors can use new technologies to improve how they care for patients. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Jones. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, miss seeing a lot of my uh, Providence colleagues, which is in, per in person, but appreciate the opportunity all the same. So um, I've got my slides up. Are we able to see those OK? Yes, looks perfect. Thank you. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Um, this talk today is uh, titled Modern Day Medicine Meets Modern Day Learning, Your Smartphone as a Resource for Lifelong Learning. Um, this talk comes out of a passion of mine for helping doctors um, leverage technologies and how they think through their clinical reasoning. Um, so let's launch in today. So starting with disclosures, uh, years ago I used to consult for a couple companies that will be mentioned, but it's been several years since I've done any work with them. Um, and today's objectives are to briefly review the edu educational state of electronic health information, discover various smartphone-based um, apps and resources to help with asynchronous learning and clinical practice, and give yourself an educational prescription on how you can use your smartphone to reinforce your learning on a daily basis. So what are we talking about today? Electronic health information is a blanket term used in the literature. It's mostly a research term. If you look this up, it's going to be talking about resources for clinicians, promising reliable, timely evidence-based answers to questions. And this is can come in any multiple formats, whether based on computer programs, tablets, or smartphone. But today we're going to mostly focus on how smartphones uh, can deliver this type of information to clinicians going over various formats of clinical decision support software, um, different applications and podcasts. And why do I know I care about this so much? Well, um, I remember seeing this chart in medical school and saying, oh my gosh, how the heck am I going to learn anything um, that the time for medical knowledge is doubling so quickly? Whether or not that's practice changing information all the time is uh, still up for debate, but it's known that the number of publications coming out is beyond what any human could realistically be able to maintain and understand. So you're going to need some kind of way to sift through and understand what's going on in the medical literature if you're going to try and keep up with um, best practices in today's time. Um, this is the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve. It's also um, basically, if you read the x-axis, it talks about over a given time, the first time you are introduced to information, you're likely to forget it. But every subsequent time you uh, come in contact with that information, the higher the retention is over time. So having some type of reinforced platform to see the same content over time is likely to re-engage you and reinforce your learning. There's extrinsic motivation to wanting to think about how to use your smartphone and whether CME or MFC credit. Um, and for educators in particular, um, the ACGME ex expects us to have our learners um, understand how to ask questions through practice-based learning and improvement 
um, meaning that they're able to investigate um, about, uh, patient care practices, appraise and assimilate scientific evidence, and improve the practice of medicine all in the clinical context. And it's hard to do this if you're going to primary literature and you need some type of tool to be able to do this efficiently. Um, and for those of you that have worked with or precept our medical students, I want to say thank you, first of all. Um, but if you have, um, you may have received a work-based placed assessment, which is a tool that OHSU does to help um, promote and um, graduate students. And one of the uh, um, untrustable professional activities that students must have is be able to form clinical questions and retrieve evidence within a clinical context. So something that we think um, in the educational world is important for everyone to be able to do. So how do we go about using electronic health information? Well, I'll start off saying that there's probably a wrong way. This is a 2011 study published in an emergency medicine journal. And I'll cut to the conclusion. Um, and the basic study design was they asked EM residents to answer questions and let them use any resource. Um, in 2011, at least, um, those emergency medicine residents that try to use Google for their search tool to answer the question actually um, felt more confident about their answers, meaning that the number of unsure answers decreased, but the overall number of incorrect answers increased. So they felt more confident, but were wrong more often. So just using Google, probably not the best way to answer clinical questions. As the literature advances in 2015, a Cochrane analysis tried to say, is there a best way? Um, and at least in the state of literature in 2015 is, it was able to show that when providers and clinicians were provided with electronic health information training, that they used the information more often, which is great. Um, but no one had yet demonstrated that a frequent utilization of these guidelines actually changed behaviors, which is kind of what we're trying to show as educators. So as time progresses, we continue to try and work towards this. And as of 2020, um, certain tools in the right context may actually be able to show behavior changes and uh, change clinical outcomes. This was a um, research done, uh, trial done in a primary care setting for a dermatologic diagnosis app that actually showed that with appropriate training, they were able to increase the diagnostic accuracy of dermatologic conditions when uh, compared to a dermatology referral and that did not increase the duration of the initial appointment. So using the right tool in the right setting could improve your diagnostic accuracy without impinging or slowing down your clinical workflow. So it's starting to show some promise. There's a lot to a um, lot of things you have to consider, but I would just say that in short, you have to start somewhere with this. Um, as we learn new and advanced things, um, you have to start somewhere, and that's where I come in today with today's talk. Um, so throughout the course of this talk, I'm going to give you a five-part self-educational prescription. This is um, if you've heard this talk before, it has modified over time. I say number one and two are core essentials, and then three, four, and five are going to be extra credit if you feel comfortable with one and two already. Um, this talk will use QR codes. Um, so if you weren't already aware, if you have a smartphone, this is obviously a talk about smartphones. I want you to have your smartphone in your hand if you have one. Um, and that um, to use a QR code, you no longer have to have a QR code applic application. Just use your camera on uh, any um, built-in camera application on your smartphone and point it at the QR code. If you point it at this one, it'll actually take you to a link to this talk later, and there will be a link at the end of the talk if you want to reference this as well. And it sounds like we have this recorded and posted for later as well. And as a plug, um, before I launch into any of this, please check with your library. Um, 
Providence Library Services. Uh, last time I was doing a rotation at Providence, I screenshotted this, um, and these were some of the applications that they had available through Library Services. Um, I tried to look and see what Providence Library Services were offering more recently, um, but there's a lot of free resources that are tremendously helpful, and some that I use and we'll talk about today. Um, so always check with them. Um, they're a fantastic group of people um, wanting to help clinicians ask questions better. So, the first batch of applications we're going to talk about today are point of care clinical decision support software or CDSS. So my first part of the educational prescription is have one you're comfortable with um, because navigation speed can be a barrier. If you feel comfortable with one of these, you're likely to keep going back and the more likely you are to go back, the easier it is to use and answer questions and it becomes a, um, a self-reinforcing loop. So what is a clinical decision support software package? Well, the one we're probably most familiar with is UpToDate. Um, as you probably know, it's a comprehensive literature database, been around for decades. Um, it's infiltrated the market. Um, ABIM actually has it as part of its um, knowledge check-ins as open book. Um, it has a great drug reference built in with Lexicomp that has a um, drug interaction um, reference. Um, but I will give the caveat that for as great as it is, uh, it is not necessarily grading its evidence on any um, criterion. It's uh, written by editors of each section and they often come with a lot of expert opinion, which can be helpful for when there's more nuanced discussion or there's not a lot of evidence about a given topic. Um, you can earn CME through this, and Providence does provide this for its clinicians. So if, if you don't already have this on your phone, this is one I highly recommend you get. Another one that's also on the market, Dynamed Plus. Um, I would say this one's great for brief, succinct pearls about conditions. I call it the Goldilocks amount of info. It's not too much, but not too little. Uh, and compared to up to date, this is often written in collaboration with guidelines committees from different uh, organized medical uh, groups. So it will grade the evidence and only talk about what the evidence shows, not necessarily provide any um, expert opinion. Um, the bullet points can leave off some nuanced discussion on topics. Uh, you can get CME and MOC available if, with a registration. Um, it's pretty pricey. I couldn't see if this was offered through Providence, but if you're a member of the American College of Physicians, this is included free with your membership. Visual DX, um, a great dermatology application. Um, it has a good differential diagnosis engine, um, but I will give the caveat that its evidence base is less robust compared to um, UpToDate or Dynamed. Um, it does include CME for individual subscribers, and it is a little pricey at $3.99 a year for an individual physician uh, subscriber, and I could not see that this was offered currently through Providence, but if you're somebody that's commonly struggling with dermatology and you're looking for a great reference, this is probably the gold standard on the electronic health information resources. Apocrates, um, there's two versions. There's a free version and uh, a pay and subscription version. I would encourage everyone to just have the free application on their phone as it has a great pill identifier. So when your patients come and say, I take the little orange pill with a number five on it, and you don't know what they're talking about, you can plug in what's on the pill and it'll actually tell you what pill they're talking about. The premium version is costly, but it has a pretty robust clinical engine. This is the application I use most as one as a medical student. Uh, very um, user-friendly interface, um, kind of walks you through treatment highlights, um, new treatments on the market, uh, what history and physical exams are correlated with the disease and how reliable they are, how to work it up, what a differential is. Um, so it can be a pretty helpful clinical tool. 
uh, our pharmacists at OHSU and uh, Nebraska, where I came from, were pretty leery about the pharmacopoeia information on this compared to Lexicomp, but it is there uh, and the dosings are there on the free version as well. Um, as far as you can tell, there's no CME associated with the use of this application. And as I said, it's a little costly at $3.99 a year for a physician um, subscriber. Next couple, I don't have any personal experience with, but I wanted to kind of offer what uh, Providence Library Services were offering. Um, looks like StatRef and Clinical Key are a couple different applications that are free through the library. Um, uh, generally speaking, it sounds like they're pretty well used. A lot of people liked them on PC platforms and sounds like there may be some struggles on a, a smartphone uh, platform, but uh, if you find that you're not necessarily in love with the other applications I've talked about so far, there's other options on the market that are available for you and wanted to bring those to your attention. So um, we've talked about clinical decision support software as part one of a core competency for any clinician. Um, you gotta have something on your phone to answer those questions that come up. Uh, what's second line treatment, uh, antibiotic coverage for community acquired pneumonia for somebody that has a beta lactam allergy? Um, uh, what's uh, after ACE uh, calcium channel blocker or uh, diuretic, what's your next um, blood pressure agent you should be reaching for? Those are the types of questions you can expect to answer with those and be up to date with the most recent evidence. For the next section, we'll talk about case-based learning. Um, case-based learning on a smartphone. Uh, I always tell people and learners I work with and uh, just to set a quota with some of these. We're going to talk about different ways to think about case-based learning on a smartphone, but setting a number of I will do three questions a week, I will do three cases a week, I'll do one case a week, just whatever you're comfortable with. Once you find a, a platform that you're comfortable with, setting something to kind of reinforce and get those reps. Um, the Eric Anderson quote of 10,000 hours of purposeful practice. The actual, the 10,000 hours doesn't mean anything. It's about purposeful practice. So reinforcing and trying doing something on a daily basis to become that uh, master and expert in your field. So the one I prefer and the one I strongly recommend to folks is the Human Diagnosis Project. Um, it's focused on building your clinical reasoning, um, building your illness scripts. Um, they're close to providing CME with this application the last time I checked. Um, and to show you what this looks like, I think it's best to show on your smartphone. Basically, you register um, with your just your phone. Um, they want your cell phone number and then you say, I'd like to solve this case. They'll give you the case at the top, a 66 year old man with encephalopathy and give you a little bit of clinical history. And then they say, what's your differential? And they ask you to type in your differential diagnosis from most likely to least likely. And then they give you a little bit of more information. And this continues through an iterative process where you re-rank your differential diagnosis. You strike things off as uh, you're given more information and you continue through the case until they come up with what was the intended diagnosis. Um, and with that, uh, authors of these cases will write teaching points and references to those. Um, most of these are peer reviewed. Um, the Global Morning Report is one that's published every day. It's actually peer reviewed and authors for them get a peer review credit on their CV. Um, it's a great, I've helped a couple learners write them actually. Um, and it's overall just a great way to get some uh, some reps in, answer some cases. They have uh, hundreds and thousands of cases that you can go on there and solve and they're every day publishing a new one. So my personal uh, goal is three a week um, and something that I find enjoyable. 
um, because I still continue to learn things about medicine through this application and through case-based learning. The next one I'll talk about is figure one. Um, figure one is more um, focused on sharing medical images in cases. Uh, they, they attempt to crowdsource medical questions. And if you get this reference, it's basically Reddit for physicians. And to show you what that looks like is somebody will post a case a image of it, um, a little bit of commentary, and then people will basically comment on the case, whether it's meant to intend to say just, hey, look at this cool case, or I am seeing this, what do you guys think is going on? You can actually page specialties and people who are active on the platform will come in and comment and talk about the case. You create a profile. Ideally, you will create the profile um, to be verified. They ask that you take a picture with your um, ID badge from where you work. Um, so that way, when people are commenting, um, you know that it's somebody else in the medical profession. Um, they have pharmacists on there, physicians, EMTs, uh, and then all the subspecialties that you could think of. So it's an interesting way to share cases. Um, I will say that the cases that are shared on there, um, a at least two humans verify each case they look and if there's identifying information they black that part out of the image um, and then if it's um, a picture there's actually the patient will sign a HIPAA release on the smartphone when the image is taken to release um, liability um, learners or anyone posting a case do check with your institution before uploading i know ohsu has a policy against these unless you have extra forms filled out other options for case-based learning, uh, Twitter report, uh, Meded, Pittsburgh is a, is a profile that will do these um, once or twice a month, um, but basically it's a semi-synchronous case discussion um, where they'll say, hey, we're going to talk about this case today. What's your next step in workup? And then over the course of a day or two, you'll solve a case with other folks on Twitter, talk about learning points, um, and it can be a fun way to do that. The QR code here is a link to one of the um, historic um, Twitter reports for information if you're wondering what that looks like. Um, the downside is you have to have a Twitter account and you got to check in regularly. But on the topic of Twitter, um, if you are on Twitter and you're looking for some medicine based follows to kind of learn from, this is my list of can't miss uh, people to follow, um, kind of ranging from our diversity, inclusion, uh, equity, and inclusion, um, Grady Doctor, um, some folks doing some differential diagnosis stuff. And then I'll, the bottom one is Andre Mansour, who's one of my colleagues in the Division of Hospital Medicine. I'll point out that they we um, he recently launched a new website called pdxpdx.com, which is short for physicaldiagnosisportland.com. So you have, if you haven't seen this website, he's put together a library of physical exam findings for teaching um, and reinforcing. If you haven't seen a JVP in a long time or don't believe they exist, I promise you they do, and he can show you how to read them even looking for the X and Y descent. Um, other ones to talk about are the clinical problem solvers. Um, this is the, every, uh, during the COVID pandemic, uh, there was a, a, lot, a lapse in uh, collegiality and people being able to do morning reports, even couldn't get together in person, so they set up an international um, community to do this. Uh, they have built over 200 uh, morning report recordings. Um, you can watch them on your phone. Um, you can participate, ask questions, or just kind of watch one of their old recordings. Um, and I will watch these when I've got an hour and uh, missing uh, some learning in, my, in the middle of my afternoon or uh, when morning report would happen. We'll often check these out. And then finally, um, an MCQ bank, I think, is internal medicine. Mixed app is probably where most of us are familiar with. 
But uh, if you're looking to get a, a case or a rep in, um, most MCQ banks are smartphone friendly and can be a great resource to kind of get in a, a few reps, whether a long elevator ride um, or you're just aimlessly staring at your phone and you realize you could do something more better with your time. All right, so we've knocked out number one and two, the kind of base prescription for your educational self-prescription. We'll add in uh, niche applications. So this is the extra credit part. I really hope you will come up with one of the clinical decision support softwares and have some case-based learning. Now it's time to think about what else can you do with your smartphone. So this next section will be niche apps. Um, these are basically kind of for limited situations, but can be a really helpful tool in the right context. What I'll say is don't add them all at once. Um, just as a craftsman adds toolbox, uh, adds tools to the toolbox over time, and they don't um, necessarily buy every tool in the hardware store all at once. You have to kind of get familiar with them. So we'll go over a series of these rapid fire. If something sounds interesting to you, um, download it, try it out. Um, and I'll always come back uh, to this talk later if you're interested in trying out some different um, applications. First one, if you're in primary care, the USPS TF recommendations application. Um, I use this all the time when I was in clinic. Um, if you don't have all of them memorized, wrote in your brain yet, um, but basically you can plug in the demographics, whether the uh, male, female, uh, age, smoking history, sexual activity, and basically gives you the uh, grade and recommendation of the screenings um, and something uh, I've used often. The next one is the vaccine schedule. Very similarly, um, if, you, if you don't have a chart on the wall next to you in clinic and you're someone that doses frequently or there, there's some kind of more nuanced question having this application on there, you can click on the type of vaccine and it will give you the specific indications like knowing PCV13 versus PPSV23, and which is a heart failure, gets 23 or 13, things I still don't have completely memorized. I just pulled my application out, click on it, and it helps me walk through that pretty quickly. Um, still in the primary care theme, um, if your patients are dealing with insomnia, this was an application developed at the VA as an adjunct to CBT for insomnia. Um, I don't know about you, but I never really had any success of getting my patients in for CBT, um, but uh, I would point them towards this app. So this is when I kept my phone to show patients um, to say this is kind of what, if you were going through CBT, this is kind of the, the toolkit that they would walk you through to track, um, learn more about um, sleep hygiene and things like that. So something I kept on my phone, not for me to use per se, but to share with patients when they were asking, I know, doc, I've got insomnia, what do I do? The ADA um, standards of care, um, this is where the American Diabetes uploads their um, different guidelines, pathways, and treatment algorithms for uh, diagnosis, uh, management of diabetes. Um, it's a pretty useful one. Um, they give you gradations of recommendations and how strong it is. It's got some of the pathways uh, and one I would often uh, pull out in clinic to remind myself, um, do I use a GLP-1 or an SGLD-2 in the setting of ASCVD or heart failure? Um, and one I would encourage you to think about if you're somebody that manages diabetes longitudinally. The cardiology guideline app um, by the ACC, um, in terms of guidelines for different organizations, I think this one's probably one of the most helpful and useful um, it's very user friendly. It's a push button, kind of walks you through algorithms to tell you where to uh, go next for management and diagnosis of things. 
Um, this is one I, I use still often um, for more nuanced discussions when it's some somewhere it's a little beyond the bounds of my knowledge and think it's a really user-friendly interface. Um, microbiology and antibiotics. Um, I'll point you to the right side of your screen, Sanford Guide. I know it's free for Providence, which is great. I miss that. Um, if you, uh, OHSU, we're mostly using the Johns Hopkins Antibiotics Guide. They're both very similar, um, but for having a free resource guide like Sanford on your phone, um, can't beat it. Um, basically, log in for the first time on a, on a PC on campus, create, uh, link it with your email account, and then uh, you can have it for free for a year on your phone and just have to um, access it on Providence campus to keep it um, active. This is one I really enjoy. Um, this is Vital Talk Tips. It's for palliative care and hospice. Um, basically, it gives you scripts or little language bits uh, on how to navigate difficult conversations. Um, really helpful. Um, and they have a section that they specifically brought up around COVID and talking about end of life discussions for elderly folks or people at high risk for mortality on COVID and how do you handle code discussions. Um, so if, if you find yourself that you're fumbling or struggling with your um, kind of palliative discussions, uh, I really like this application. I borrow phrases from it all the time just to kind of add in that can really help frame and move the conversation along when you're when you're um, lacking and struggling for words. Um, diagnose, um, spelled that way. Uh, basically, this is for those who are um, enthusiasts for evidence-based physical exam. Um, it tells you the likelihood ratios for certain um, history and exam findings, mostly based off of the JAMA Rational Clinical Exam Series, and gives you an um, ability to kind of pick your uh, diagnosis and then give you a Bayesian um, probability that you're looking at the diagnosis. And if you're interested in kind of thinking about, well, how helpful is wheezing for COPD exacerbation? Well, the likelihood ratio is 3.8 for a positive um, exam finding. So um, fun to kind of work that way. The next level of that is DocLogica. Um, this one is um, subscription. It's $10 a year but the amount of physical exam findings is much, much more robust, and they also have a differential diagnosis um, maker on there that you can plug in um, physical exam, historical bent markers, and it will come up with a differential diagnosis if you're kind of struggling and up against a wall. The clinical problem solvers, I mentioned their um, recorded videos for morning grand rounds. Um, they have a website and they also do podcasts. Um, their application is, a, um, if you're not familiar with them, kind of their, one of their claim to fame is coming up with frameworks on approaches to problems. Um, and by buying their application, you're basically supporting their mission, um, but then you also get to have these frameworks saved to your phone and downloaded for easy reference. You can access the same frameworks on the website for free, but it gets a little clunky. So if you've got the $15 to spare, it's a good mission. Um, and I often will reference these for new onset systolic heart failure, approaches to hemolytic anemia are ones that I use all the time. They've got some great frameworks for anyone still kind of new in training or um, looking for a fresh way to kind of uh, reinvigorate your diagnostic approaches. It's a great um, download. Visual Med is for those in the audience that want to know why we do what we do. Um, this is run by a couple fellows in cardiology um, that 
every month they'll pick one or two benchmark trials for different areas, whether cardiology, hematology, infectious disease, and basically create a visual abstract of the landmark trials by specialty. Um, and then you can search those out. Um, this is a fun way to kind of say stay current and understand why we're doing what we're doing. Um, without having to read the entire journal article, I think it's a very easy way to kind of understand uh, what the trials we're trying to accomplish and really get down to the nuts and bolts of how useful were the interventions. Um, read my QX. Um, this is for folks that like the idea of subscribing to journals. Um, if you're still getting journals in the mail, but you're feeling guilty about all the shipping and postage and having trees cut down for paper, um, by creating an account through uh, Read by QX and linking it to the Providence Library site, you can basically subscribe to specific sections of journal articles and then view the PDFs on your phone. It'll link your access through there. Um, follow things like uh, the New England Journal clinical reasoning sections and um, different medical education journals. So check it out once or twice a month to see what new, new things are being published. Um, if you're looking for resource and supplements or herbal resources, um, I usually give a couple free resources here, but I noticed that Providence offers um, natural medicines, which is actually a pretty well-regarded resource um, for looking up um, herbals and um, complementary alternative medicines and having um, uh, interaction calculator. Um, so here's a link to look on how to get it for, at Providence. Um, I'm kind of jealous that this resource is provided to you and would encourage you to think about having this in your phone. MD Calc. Quickly on this one, you probably used the website, but you can actually download the calculators on your phone. And the only reason I do this is um, certain areas of the hospitals have awful cell reception and little Wi-Fi. Um, so if I want to quickly find a calculator and I know I'm like likely to drop the internet, I'll pull it out. You can get CME if you pay the money, but I think there's better ways to get CME. Canopy Speak. Um, in short, this is an application helped developed by NIH. It's a language interpret um, translator service. Um, basically gives you short phrases that are meant to be yes or no questions. Definitely not meant to replace an interpreter service. Um, but if you have one or two questions that uh, you just want to ask that uh, you may be able to get by without having to call an interpreter, you may be able to look those up. Um, I use this most often to learn how to say hello, goodbye, and thank you in my patients language um, as a way to connect with them and show effort. Um, and then the last couple are based on point-of-care ultrasound. For those of you that are trying to become um, more pr uh, proficient in these, the Evidence Atlas um, is a great resource. It basically tells you areas of the body you can scan using point-of-care ultrasound, um, different findings or diseases you may be looking for. Based on the literature, it gives you a table of how um, reliable those findings are. Uh, and then has a short gallery where you can uh, compare uh, your findings to uh, set um, abnormal and normal findings. Um, this is one I still pull out. I used it was on week of nights last week and was trying to diagnose small bowel obstruction with a point of care ultrasound and walked through here and actually diagnosed one. And then the other one in point of care ultrasound is um, this application is actually an adjunct for a textbook, but if you're looking for just a bunch of examples on different types of findings for point of care ultrasound, this is one that's free. You can download it to your phone and just expand your library of um, examples for ultrasound. So that was a rapid fire survey of different applications to be used on your smartphone. Um, 
like I said, don't add them all at once. Uh, the mistake I'll have learners after this talk is they download them all and then they don't know where to start. So um, add them slowly at your leisure and explore. And I think some of this is also meant to be fun. Um, the next section for extra credit um, are going to be podcasts. Um, if you're not somebody who's ever listened to podcasts, just think of them as a recorded radio show. Um, if you're somebody that doesn't listen to medical podcasts but enjoys them, um, if you think about it and uh, just add a podcast in for a bike or a car commute or doing chores around the home, it's a great way to passively learn about something. Um, and some of the um, communities built around medical podcasts are growing. Um, there's more and more and more coming on the market every day, and um, they're doing great work. Um, so we'll go over some of the some of the podcasts that I've listened to uh, and my recommendations. So for general medicine, general internal medicine, um, I think the one that got me kicked off was the Curbsiders. It's probably the most known, um, and they basically have um, they interview experts in different areas and try and talk about a topic, and they can last anywhere from 25 to 70 minutes, um, depending on how deep the topic is. Um, they try and talk and include some wellness discussions at the start of the talk, uh, recommendations on books or movies that they're watching. So uh, they focus not just on learning medicine, but also trying to stay well in medicine. And it's not all just practice, but more things about how to become more academically engaged, diversity, and, uh, equity, and inclusion in medicine, um, uh, supporting um, women in medicine, a lot of different uh, other aspects of the practice of medicine that aren't necessarily just related to clinical practice. So it's a great podcast. Um, if you remember ACP, all of the podcasts on this slide will offer some CME or MOC credit. Um, if you follow the link there, it's how to access that. Um, the next one is Core IM. Uh, this is a group mostly out of NYU. A lot of them have now graduated and are moving to, moved around, but um, it's short, um, shorter than the Curbsiders uh, podcast, whether it's pearls about a specific topic, there's some clinical reasoning, um, like case discussant type episodes. Um, and so it's a, little, it's a little bit of a shorter format for folks to learn um, great content. Really like that one. Um, Bedside Rounds uh, is from an OHSU IM graduate Adam Rodman, now out in Boston. Um, he does a history podcast where he talks about um, historical facets of medicine, whether it's um, why did some of the uh, Roman emperors die? It might have been from hemorrhagic uh, hereditary telangiectasia or the history of syphilis. Um, so if you're learning to learn, looking to learn about medicine, but from a uh, different um, nuanced historical aspect, I really enjoy that one. Um, if you can't tell I'm a giant nerd. Um, next one is Annals on Call. Um, it's Bob Centaur of the Centaur Score. Him and other discussants will talk about the most um, high yield articles being published in the uh, Annals of Internal Medicine, usually 10 to 20 minutes long. Um, and a great way to kind of stay up on the literature being published in that journal. Some other just really good stuff. Um, the Clinical Problem Solvers shows up again. Um, I won't speak much more about that, but it's great for case-based uh, clinical reasoning. Um, at the MCRIT podcast, uh, if you're in pulmonary medicine, critical care, or still in residency doing ICU rotations, um, I would use this to kind of supplement my learning in the ICU. Um, and they kind of talk about uh, different tools, tricks, and approaches to things in uh, critical care. Um, a lot of for free online open access med ed there, foam ed, 
coming out of that group as well um, and really enjoyable. Next one is plenary session. Uh, this is by Vinay Prasad, used to be at OHSU, now down at UCSF. Um, it's an intersection of policy and oncology, hematology, and discussing evidence-based medicine and medical reversal. Um, the PUSCAS, if you're in infectious disease, Mark Chrislip, um, local ID doc, um, reviews the uh, infectious disease literature. And it's kind of dry humor. I really enjoy that one. Um, this podcast will kill you. This is more of an anthropologic approach to understanding the history of different infectious diseases that have spread through humanity and how it's impacted um, our ability to relate to each other. A little too on the nose right now for a pandemic, but uh, if you're interested in learning about why smallpox was as big of a deal as it was, that's a great way to kind of review that. Explore the space, kind of getting into more of a medical humanities. This is Mark Shapiro. Um, his podcast kind of invites people to talk about how um, medicine kind of interplays with the low, larger global community um, and inf interesting things on there. You know, he'll have uh, timely interviews with folks. Um, uh, it's just a good kind of middle ground of, I like learning about modern day issues, but also I'm a doctor, so I want some medical theme to it. Um, the Nocturnus uh, is like uh, the Moth Radio Hour on NPR, if you're familiar with that, where um, basically uh, clinicians will share really heart-wrenching stories or something that's very impactful to them. And they'll talk about how uh, do a post-story interview and how um, that kind of led to some life-changing epiphany or just how to sit with some of the struggles that we all deal with in medicine. Um, it's a great way to just kind of connect with the humanistic side of medicine um, and one I would recommend listening to. Uh, and the last one is I Am Reasoning, a um, couple Kiwis, Art Nahil and Nick Sheckett um, talk about different, uh, they try and bridge cognitive um, psychology and some of the thinking fast and slow and some of the uh, behavioral economics um, and how that interplays with how doctors think and reason through cases. So another good listen. All right. The last section of this talk today is going to be get organized. This is a new section I've started talking about, but one I found that um, a lot of people don't have a way to get organized. And by that, I mean, on your smartphone, do you have a way to take notes and uh, have a cross-platform method for your resources? So for example, if you're anyone, anything like me, um, I at one point had a folder on my iPhone with 300 pictures of slides from talks I had been to and said, man, that's a great slide. I want to save that for later. Would take a picture, put it in this folder, and then six months later be like, man, I'd really like to reference that. Where the heck is it? And have to spend a ton of time going back to find it. So these are ways to think about if you have notes, if you have um, papers you like to often um, cite or look at, um, ways to think about on your smartphone. How do you help manage this? The one I use is Microsoft OneNote. Uh, many people have this on their PC and never know what it is. It just keeps yelling at them. You accidentally print something and it prints to OneNote and you're like, I don't want that. That's not what I meant to do. Well, it's actually a great note-taking piece of software um, that both works on PCs, on Apple devices, and syncs to your phones, whether Android or um, Apple. Um, the link here is not to the App Store. It's actually a link to my notebook, just so you can kind of see what it might look like. And this is a screenshot of basically I created a notebook and created different um, disease um, organ-based um, systems. And then under each 
organs. So under cardiology, I have different topics where I'll put screen grabs or um, pictures from slides that I'll often reference. And this is a free application. You don't have to um, pay for it. As long as you have um, like a Hotmail account or some type of other Microsoft email, it's for it's free and it can be on your PC as well. So um, if you're if you've got a lot of random resources floating around and you've got the time to commit to get organized, I think you'll think yourself down the road for having a way to kind of rearrange things. If you're anti um, Bill Gates and you want to try something else, there's another one called Evernote. I know a lot of uh, my colleagues in medical school that use this for note taking mostly in the preclinical years, but um, it has very similar features. It's got a free version as well. Um, for some of the more nuanced tools there, uh, you have to pay a subscription per year, but it's a pretty nominal fee um, if you're interested in exploring that. And then if you're very pro Google, you in theory could do the same with a Google Drive and Google Docs um, that would be able to sync from your PC or Apple device uh, to your smartphone, creating folders and things like that. So basically uh, a couple ideas on how to use your smartphone to organize and wrangle the resources you already have, um, but maybe not having it in a way that's quickly accessible. And then the organizers of the talk asked me to think about diversity, equity, and inclusion and how it might relate to this topic. Um, and since this is mostly a topic geared towards um, the clinician and how it's educating yourselves, um, I try to think when I think about smartphone applications and I think about the co uh, concept of populations other than myself, um, I, I first thought of my grandparents um, as a kind of nuanced way of thinking about diversity. Um, when it comes to technology, um, age uh, is often double-sided, double-edged um, double sword, um, where there's the trope of the old person doesn't know how to use technology, but that's not true. I think it uh, can often be a little oversimplified. But the thing that I wanted to bring to the table here is I try to find literature talking about um, perceptions of whether clinicians should be using smartphones in the clinical workplace. Um, because I'm encouraging you in this whole talk to use your smartphone more and use it to answer questions. But what do patients think about that? Um, most of these are single site surveys. The largest one I found was in 2017 in a, uh, at a hospital based in London. And they asked the question, should doctors and nurses use smartphones or tablets at work? Um, and it was pretty mixed. Um, there was a lot of mostly uh, the frequency on this didn't make a lot of sense to me because uh, I think it's the way they ask the questions, the total um, frequency definitely adds over 100%, but the distribution looks like that. But they did a subgroup analysis by age, and basically they found that if people under the age of, um, under the age of 70 felt that 60% said it was inappropriate for doctors and nurses to use smartphones at work, but if you were over the age of eight, uh, 70, uh, it went up to 88% was felt inappropriate. So this is something that I bring forth um, when using and kind of thinking about this whole talk and how do I use my smartphone more, being cognizant that um, using it in a way that our patients will perceive as benefiting their care and not us um, neglecting them or paying attention to something else that if you, well, the way I use this when I'm in a clinical context, if I'm saying, I will tell my patient, I need to look something up on my phone that's going to help answer a question. Do you mind holding on a moment? Um, definitely making a mindful, uh, concerted effort to let people know. And then with this, um, thinking about 
different aging populations definitely um, generally held uh, among the elderly populations that it's more inappropriate to be using a smartphone in the clinical context. So thinking about that. And then try to think about um, how it relates to Oregon in particular. Um, this is a new fact for me actually that based on the 2016 Census Bureau estimate of the six most um, diverse um, counties in the state by percentages of people of color, five of them are actually rural counties, um, ranging from 34 to 41% um, describing themselves as non-Caucasian. Um, and where this comes into play with uh, access and technology is that with the global pandemic, with COVID and uh, a large reliance on telehealth for access to primary care, um, people that don't live in a metropolitan service area um, or basically aren't urban and uh, live in rural communities are not accessing telehealth as much as uh, as much as their urban based um, counterparts. Whether that's um, the lack of infrastructure for um, high speed Internet, whether that's unfamiliarity with the technology, whether that's their clinical practices aren't um, supporting telehealth or whether that's folks that live in Rural communities don't often access health as uh, healthcare as much as uh, urban was not something I was able to dive into and not the scope of the literature that I found, but definitely something to keep in mind that um, both there's intersectionality between um, uh, diversity with regards to race in our, our state and rural living um, and something that technology may be inadvertently exacerbating. So I leave you with a thought that technology is a tool. It's not a cure-all, it's not a panacea for making our lives easier, um, and it requires smart, passionate people to be leveraged well. Um, so you have to be mindful of how you're using these tools in the right setting to try and address the right questions and trying to answer the right uh, questions. So um, with that, I will go over the self-educational prescription one more time, leave this QR code up for a moment um, that you can come back to this talk on a Google, uh, Google presentation. So. If you don't have a clinical decision support software up to date, Dynamed, um, have one, get used to it, and keep coming back for more. Uh, number two, get some case-based learning, get some reps in. Just like if you're trying to uh, grow your biceps, you'd make sure you hit the gym so many times a week. You're, all, all of us should be trying to become better doctors, so finding ways to get extra reps in, uh, see more patients, so to say, um, and learn as you go along in your practice for lifelong learning. Um, try some, for extra credit, try some new applications on your phone, but don't try them all at once. Um, if you haven't listened to podcasts, try them out and try a medicine podcast on. Um, and think about a way to get organized with your smartphone. Um, if you were like me previously, uh, had no way of referencing your notes previously, um, if you spend the time and get organized, uh, you'll find that all of those slides you once saved are actually helpful if you know how to get a hold of them. And with that, We'll end the talk. And I'm trying to come thank, back. Thank, thank you so much, Dr. Jones, for just a tremendous wealth of information and resources there. I think you have many of us thinking. Um, I'm, I'm going to read a, a, a late comment from one of our viewers um, and give you a chance to respond to that, I think, um, which you did somewhat towards your concluding statements. Um, and I'll just go ahead and read this. Um, Reliance of technology is a remarkable advancement in healthcare diagnosis and treatment, but what has happened to the basic behavior by clinicians of touching patients rather than them sitting in front of the computer screens? 
and what happens when a cell phone doesn't operate well or loss of power makes tech reliance unavailable. Um, do clinicians simply not practice medicine? Um, and it goes on to say, yet um, it is clear that references remain important to educate and guide decision making, um, whether it be from a book or a smartphone, um, and maybe just your your reflections, Dr. Jones, on the sentiment from this comment. Yeah, I think um, this is kind of the the struggle of kind of moving through all of this, and just as like as a society as a whole not just specifically contained in medicine, society as a whole is really struggling with how do we adapt as a community to these new digital lives that we're leading. Um, for medicine, I, I believe that there should be a fundamental base of knowledge that whatever specialty you're in, you have a base set of knowledge that you know cold, um, that you can't ask every question um, at the time that's being asked of you, that you have to learn. And that was part of what the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve is supposed to be, of, um, you, as you learn, you get it re-exposed to it, and eventually you do remember it over time. Um, and that I do think that, um, so just thinking about the knowledge that these are meant to be reinforced until the point that it is kind of ingrained, occasionally checking in to make sure there's not something new. With the sentiment of being detached from patients, uh, this is something I often have to talk about with my uh, learners when I'm rounding. Um, is focusing on the patient. I think we system design, human system design in our healthcare system is often not even second thought, third, fourth, or never thought about. Um, where the computers in the room are set up, it's often away from the patient, looking away. Um, so I, I, def I definitely agree with the sentiment of adding another screen between you and the patient is something that's not desired. Um, I would argue, usually using these outside of the clinical context asking questions afterwards, but sometimes it, it does makes the most sense when you're in there, especially in a, in a clinic appointment, outpatient medicine, where leaving the room just to answer a question is not going to be a, a great use of your time. So sometimes you need to use this. Um, and then with um, the power going out, um, yeah, I think as a physician who trained in a generation where I, I think I wrote three papered charts and notes in my entire training, um, this is something that we're, um, Hopefully we'll never have to deal with, but whether it be natural or man-made disaster that leads to power going out, I think um, there can be an over-reliance and something that uh, will be a bridge we have to cross. And hopefully as we're all continuing to train, we learn from those um, who have trained before us that didn't have all these tools and still kind of observe, because I think there's a wealth of knowledge and pre-electronic age medicine um, that's there that if we don't spend some effort to maintain um, will be lost and forgotten. Um, physical exam being one of them um, that now we have focus and a lot of people are kind of forget how to listen for things. Um, so it's something that we have to kind of choose. We can't keep everything. We need to understand what's best practice, what's actually helpful and what we have been doing that will prov provide better clinical care and choose those things to kind of carry forward. Not everything just for the sake of doing them should be done, but really trying to understand what's actually helpful. And that's actually what part of my job is, is trying to say, um, understand um, cognitive theory on how, which of these tools are actually gonna help doctors and learners answer questions better, and how do we teach learners to use these tools more effectively and not overwhelm them and just really trying to hone in, is there best practice on this? And it's kind of my future academic work. 
Great. Many thanks for your thoughts there. Um, I think we'll all work on kind of how best to operationalize this. Um, maybe similarly, um, when we get into some of these more nuanced areas, any comments you hear or thoughts or reflections um, on a similar topic and that being um, the interface of home and work boundaries um, and some of um, the, the, the blurred lines as more um, medical uh, information or tools um, come onto your own personal devices and even the very specifics of um, perhaps uh, providing or being expected to provide your own equipment. Yeah, um, so I will first kind of mention I work-life balance is the phrase that's often thrown around. Um, I like the phrase work-life harmony because balance makes it seems like it's just it's a can only be one or the other. You either are at home or you're at work. Um, as clinicians and physicians, um, it's really hard to separate that identity from who you are and it really becomes part of your core identity. So rather than saying I can only be doing one thing or the other, finding it's going to bleed over and there's no way to have hard guardrails there but finding ways to say i expect that um, at certain times i'm going to be 90 percent home but your brain's always going to kind of somewhat be in medicine so to your point um, about smartphone devices um, and how how does it come into play if you've got your epic on your phone answering clinical things you're getting buzzed at home um, so it, it takes some effort because um, most people don't know how to do this, but you can actually set like notification boundaries and what time that you get notifications on certain applications. I think some of the easiest way to do this is on your smartphone. Um, anything that's medical, hide it on further screens on your homepage. So you have to go further to swipe to get to them. Um, that way you're less likely to get those little red notifications yelling at you and kind of stealing your attention. Um, so it's kind of these human design factors that when designers made these applications, they made them um, in a way that they want to gain your attention. And so you have to fight against that and say, what's important to me? What do I want to allow this device to steal my attention if it's necessary? And what things can I, I know that I don't need right away and push to later? Um, with the with the podcast, I'll say that I, in my early time residency, listened to a lot of podcasts and the later part of my residency, um, kind of backed away because I, I felt a little overwhelmed with how much physician uh, being a physician came into who my identity was and had to kind of reassess what I, I thought was important and re kind of interchange non-medicine things in there. So it's never a set point. It will always continue to move depending on where you are and your training and your practice um, and something I think um, our non-clinician um, loved ones and the community members also struggle with of how much attention do we commit to our, our smartphones and devices as well. Great, thanks so much. And a couple of real um, specific questions here about suggested reference, if you happen to know. Um, one wonders um, about a reference that you'd recommend specifically for derm conditions. I do know that came up briefly early in your talk. And then secondly, um, a source for patient information. And I assume this would mean sort of patient-facing, patient education materials. Uh, any thoughts um, on either of those topics? Yeah, uh, the derm conditions, um, Visual DX is the is the application I often point to because it is kind of the gold standard. Um, it now includes all internal medicine topics, but it used to just be dermatologic conditions. Um, I, I, I don't think Providence offers it, unfortunately, but that would be the one I'd point you to. 
Um, and then beyond that, there's not a lot of um, really robust digital-based references. There's a lot of textbooks you can access through Access Medicine. I think you folks have at Providence. There are different dermatologic textbooks that you can kind of sort through, so kind of stuck in that way. Um, but if you have the opportunity to trial, test, or um, look at Visual DX, that's the one I would um, point to. Um, and then the other question. Right. Sorry. Yeah, it was um, about like patient education. Yeah. Um, patient education, um, most health systems are, I know through Epic, paying for um, handouts to be part of their suite of resources, um, and it's built into your Epic workflows to plug into an AVS. Um, if you're looking for other things to point to, UpToDate has um, patient um, level information for different conditions. So if you're looking at a condition, and you look on the um, you like under the glossary or ever um, index for the article. It's you scroll to the bottom. If there's a relevant patient level information, that'll kind of give you a link to that. You can print those out, and all the patient level information resources on up to date are, I believe, external facing that patients can reference later without necessarily needing a subscription. Um, and they have kind of basics, but then advanced patient levels as well for those who have a higher health, uh, health literacy or have been dealing with the condition and isn't their first time learning about it. Um, and I, I saw a question about OneDrive, similar mm -hmm. to OneNote. Um, OneDrive on Microsoft is just their cloud storage. Um, OneNote saves the notebooks to OneDrive. It's kind of um, just kind of nomenclature, and it's unfortunate that they both start with the word one because I will often misspeak and say that. But OneNote is the actual note-taking software, um, and then you basically use your OneDrive through your Microsoft account, your Hotmail account to save those notes onto that. Great, thanks for helping us with that logistics. I'll acknowledge we're at 8.58. We do have one last question that popped up, not a small one. Um, <laughs> so we'll go ahead and take that and then recognize we'll wrap up in the next couple of minutes. And that is, is medical practice in danger of being replaced by AI? Oh, Simon, what a hot topic. <laughs> um, uh, I would say, is the practice of clinical medicine in danger? No, I, I don't think it is. Um, things that are, I think radiology may be in some areas in danger because it's something that a machine algorithm can learn pretty well. Um, but the clinical bedside practice of medicine requires, um, the probably the biggest barrier is being able to extract data in a way that's helpful. Um, they have done studies trying to just have patients answer 100 question questionnaires when they come in the emergency department and plug it in to see how reliable it was, and it, it just doesn't pan out. Um, that there's something um, that gets into the cognitive theory of an expert of being able to quickly decipher what the clinical context is and change what questions you're asking that only comes with expertise in the human brain. And I think we're decades, centuries off from ever having the medical know-how to be able to understand when you see something, start asking the right questions. And so the data entry point for clinical practice is going to be the biggest barrier for AI to be able to really um, take over our footprint. And I think we're way, way far away from that for the practice in, of uh, internal medicine. But things like radiology, it, it's starting to encroach and starting to show some promise. And I think that's probably where the first um, turf war between computers and doctors' brains will take over. Great. Well, with that, I think we'll wrap up the session for today. Thanks again so much for your time and your energy and your expertise, Dr. Jones, and thanks to the audience for all the great questions. We will see you next week.
Thanks again.